That particular song comes out of Isaiah 64 that uh, is really a heart cry, Lord, rend the heavens. It's using a figurative picture. Rend the heavens would be like God tearing the sky and stepping down. In other words, revival is when God manifests his presence. Now the truth is for all of us in this room, we know theologically God's here. But one thing that marks revival is the presence of God being manifested so that people sense it. In fact, Holy Spirit conviction is a manifest of the presence of God. Comfort is a manifestation of the presence of God. But revival, they say, is like the atmosphere is charged with the presence of God. And the picture is just like God ripped open the heavens and stepped down. I like that imagery. Isn't it neat imagery? But anyway, thank you for that song tonight. Luke 22, if your Bible's Luke 22, thank you for a good crowd here tonight. And I want to tell you something. It's a joy to be at Canaan Baptist Church. I got to thinking, I think Canaan Baptist Church is the only place you hear amens coming out of the choir when they're singing their song. Unbelievable. Normally people amen out here, but you got them in the choir getting so happy they can't even sing anymore. They got to say amen. I don't know. Uh, that's great. That's good stuff. So uh, you guys keep that up. I enjoy that. Okay. Luke 22. We're going to look at a message. I'm going to entitle the message tonight, Satan's Sifting of Saints. Satan's Sifting of Saints. Try to say that five times real fast. Okay. Satan's Sifting of Saints. I want to deal with something here tonight. The Bible says, I'm talking about Satan, that we're not ignorant of his devices. Now what that means is every device of Satan is exposed in the Word of God. None of us out here need to be worried about the devil because every single strategy he has, every bit of his deceptive methods are exposed in the Word of God. I'm going to expose one of them tonight because the Bible does. And I'm going to call it Satan's sifting of saints and it comes out of our Lord's words to the Apostle Peter before the Lord Jesus was taken to be crucified. This is a very interesting passage of Scripture. We're just going to stay in the two verses because we have just enough time to be able to cover those two. But before we get into these verses of Scripture, I want to give you context. Unfortunately, we as Americans have a tendency not to understand the context of the New Testament. You have to understand, think about this. Can you imagine as Americans living in a country that is an occupied country. In other words, we're ruled by a foreign capital. Military soldiers from a foreign country walk our streets. There's foreign military installations on American soil. There's a puppet government in Washington. We all know the country is run from a foreign capital. Now that for an American is an unthinkable thought, isn't it? But you have to understand that's how Jews lived. Roman soldiers walked their streets. There were Roman military installations on Jewish soil. There was a puppet government in Jerusalem. Everybody knew Rome ran the show. And because these Jewish people were red-blooded Jewish people, they wanted nothing more than to throw off the yoke of Roman rule and once again rule themselves. But they had one difference between the hypothetical illustration of America and the real illustration of first century uh, Jewish life, and that is there was the promise to Jews of a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah. Now, obviously, when Jesus Christ showed up, Peter believed Jesus was Messiah. You say, how do you know that? Well, because the Lord asked him. And uh, who, do, who do men say that I am? And they were saying different things. Who do you say I am? Peter spikes right up. Thou art the Christ. And you know what Jesus uh, said? Flesh and blood didn't reveal that, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter was in tune enough to know Jesus was Messiah. Here's Peter's problem. His concept of Messiah was not fully biblical. 
Now, Peter made a mistake that it's easy to do. There are obviously two comings. Uh, there's uh, the first coming of Jesus, the second coming, and they're like two hills, and there was a valley in between, and he didn't see the valley. You ever been traveling and seen mountain range, and you only think there's one? You get across it, oh, there's a valley in between. That's exactly the way it was. And so he got it mixed up a little bit and he kind of put some of the second coming into the first coming. You know what I'm talking about? And so he was thinking that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and save his people from Roman rule. But what Peter learned is Jesus didn't come to save the people from the Romans. He came to save the people from their sins. It's interesting in Matthew 16, the Bible says Jesus said from this time forth began Jesus to say unto his disciples, that he must needs go in Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him, began to say unto him, uh, began to say unto him, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art offense unto me. Isn't it interesting that Peter was saying, no, 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 don't talk about death. Don't talk about resurrection. Don't talk about that. You're going to be the one that's going to lead us into triumph and overrunning the Romans. Now, we see a little glimpse of this in the garden. Remember when they came to apprehend Jesus? What did Peter do? Peter took out a sword and he began to fight. Now, that's like suicide. You know what I'm talking about? There's a hundred soldiers there and he takes out a sword. And let's just be honest, Peter wasn't even a very good aim. Tried to part the guy's hair and he only got an ear. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? That's going to be a little bit of trouble. <laughs> and uh, so you say, preacher, why do you think Peter took that out? Because he believed they were going to win. He was ready to fight. Let's go get it. Let's take off the Romans. We got Jesus. We're going to win this thing. He's Messiah. You see, understand what happened? But then he finds that Jesus Christ is being taken. And what does Peter do three times? He denies the Lord. Sometimes we say, how in the world could it happen? I'm going to tell you why it could happen. And I don't want you to miss this because we're going to get into the text. You need to understand this context. And here, here it is. Peter was in the midst of paradox. You say, preacher, what's paradox? You say, well, it's two medical doctors. No, 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 no. Okay, what's a paradox? Okay, a paradox is a seeming contradiction. Paradox would be like All-Star Game in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, that's a paradox. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. It's a contradiction. You say, what do you mean All-Star Game in Atlanta, Georgia? Okay, a paradox would be like a conservative Democrat. Okay, that's a paradox. See, there are paradoxes. A few years ago, a paradox would have been Chicago Cubs and World Series in the same sentence. That would have been a paradox. It is now 16. We got that under our belt, so we're now set the clock for another 108 years. Okay, but anyway, so... Um, uh, but uh, paradox is a seeming contradiction. And I will tell you, when you and I are in a seeming contradiction, we're vulnerable, and Peter was vulnerable. Now, let's see exactly what Jesus predicted here and exactly what happened. Look at verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, so we know the devil's in on this thing, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So what was going on? And here's the point, what was going on. Satan was sifting Peter as wheat. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, the interesting part is that word sift. Because I remember looking that up in Strong's Concordance, and it had a figurative definition, because clearly this is figurative because of the little word as. This isn't literal. It's figurative, and it says Satan wants to sift you as wheat. Now, I grew up in Chicago, so I don't know a lot about agriculture. 
I found out where milk came from in the fifth grade. Comes from the store. Okay, but anyway, uh, I grew up, uh, uh, I, I did not grow up in agriculture. I remember in the fourth grade, after fourth grade, we moved out to the suburbs next to a cornfield. Wow, that was, we thought that was the greatest thing, right next to corn. But I don't know a whole lot about wheat. I really don't. But I'm glad I really don't have to because it's figurative. Sift as wheat. And I will tell you, friends, when I looked up Strong's Concordance, here is the figurative definition. It said, don't miss this, to riddle. To riddle. You say, well, Richard, what in the world does that mean? Okay, let's take a little step back, and, and maybe I'm going to use an illustration. I wish I had a better one, but I, I think you'll remember it, so I'm going to use it. It was either 1964, 1965, or 1966. Who was alive back then? Who was alive back then? Okay, anyway, it was one of those three years. We sat down in the den in Durango, Colorado. My dad was the pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church. We sat down in the den, and uh, we turned on a television set. This was back when television sets were pieces of furniture, you Remember that? Big, huge thing. You had to arrive about five minutes earlier to turn it on, and there was a blizzard on the screen. And then you moved the rabbit ears around, and the blizzard cleared up. Man, that was the glory days. You remember that? Old black and white television there. This was back, hey, teenagers, you had to dust the TV. We used Pledge. We had to do that every Saturday, dust the TV. How many know what I'm talking about here? Yes, okay, we're vibing. All those boomers are vibing here. Okay, it was either 1964, 1965, 1966. We sat down to watch, I'm telling the honest truth, the very first episode episode of Batman and Robin. Man, as a little kid, I was absolutely enthralled. On that first episode, I fell in love with Batman and Robin. I mean, I was just enthralled. And at the very end, there was a fight scene. Man, was it high-tech. There was boom, kaboom, you know, punk bowie and pop. Unbelievable high-tech technology. If you remember back to that day, I didn't realize the rest of the time, there's always a fight scene at the end of Batman, but that was the first episode. We didn't know that. And I will tell you, I'm telling you, the next week, same bat time, same bat channel. I was back watching my Cape Crusader. Okay, some of you tracking with me. But I learned something about Batman and Robin. Each episode had a different villain. Boy, they had some pretty cool villains. They had the Penguin, I remember him. They had the Joker, you might remember him. And they had Mr. Freeze, he was cool, no pun intended. And uh, uh, they had him. And uh, then they had uh, one of my favorites, the Riddler. Yeah, the Riddler. It was years later that I learned that the Riddler had a green suit. I thought it was gray. I had a black and white TV, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, but anyway, years later, I learned that the Riddler's outfit was green, and all over his outfit was... See, you watched it too. I set you up. Uh, yeah, you watched it too. It was question marks to riddle. You know what I believe this figurative definition is of sifting his wheat? It's when Satan throws question marks into our hearts. May I put it this way? Satan always wants to put a question mark where God puts a period. And he is really good at doing it. And I don't want you to miss this. And he's most effective at doing it when you are in the middle of paradox. The Bible even says in the book of Ephesians, talking about spiritual warfare, it says, talking about, and lift the shield of faith wherewith we shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. You know what those darts, I believe, are? Question marks. Well, obviously, faith would quench question. 
right? Faith would quench doubt. Now let's see if we're heading in the right direction. Let's go back and look at the text and see if this definition of sift is wheat will hold up under context. Let's go back and look. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not. So whatever sifting of wheat is, it's an attack on faith. So the definition of a riddle being a question mark seems to bear up under context. So I would simply say this to the people here at Canaan Baptist Church, is when you and I are in paradox, we are very vulnerable to the fiery darts of question marks that the enemy throws our way. And if you drop the shield of faith, they go right in. And I will tell you, they hinder your Christian life. Question marks hinder your Christian life. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, so I want to just pause for a moment. We'll come back to this context and finish up in a moment. I want to give you tonight four paradoxes. There are far more, I'm sure, but four paradoxes that I believe Satan uses to try to throw question marks or to riddle us with doubt when in the midst of those paradoxes. Number one, this is probably makes a lot of sense, the paradox of suffering. The paradox of suffering. There are times in our Christian lives, let's just be honest, that we can't figure out what God's doing. You know, my friend, there are times uh, where you're going through life and what you're going through does not seem to match up with the Word of God. Ever had that happen? Have you ever had situations where you didn't think God was doing what you think He ought to do? That's a paradox. Now, if I could just use, if I could please, just a real small paradox, and I'm not trying to make light the big ones because the big ones are, and I'm going to mention some personal ones in a moment, but the small paradox, let me just give you a small paradox that sometimes we go through on our kind of periodic basis to kind of help you understand what I'm talking about. How many out here have ever had a bad day? Bad day. Okay, now here's what happens on a bad day. You get up late. If you get up on time, usually you're not going to have a terrible day. Okay, but if you get up a little bit late, whoa, you look at your clock, oh, I'm late. Not going to make it to work on time. Now the traffic's worse. You know what I'm talking about. And so you go running down there and you're thinking, oh, I don't want my stomach to ground in the middle of the day. And so you grab some dry cereal, put some milk on it, and you sit down, just try to shovel in, uh, take a spoonful or two of the uh, cereal, and all of a sudden you realize the milk's spoiled. So you get up and you knock the cereal bowl over. Now you got soggy Captain Cardboard all over the floor. You know what I'm talking about. And milk. And you step back and your sock hits. Oh, don't you hate socks? Then they get wet. And you hit the milk and you slip and you hit the, the cat just right. It's the last meow. You know what I'm talking about? Think, what am I going to do with a dead cat? So you realize it's not laundry day, so you go up, empty the laundry, uh, the hamper, and you put the cat on the bottom, and you put all the laundry on top of it. I say, I'll take care of that later. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. And so uh, you're just in a hurry. You think, oh, I'll get something at McDonald's on the way to work, you know. I'm, and you, and you, so you hop out of there, and you get in the car, you turn the car on, you're in a hurry, you put it in reverse. You forgot to put the garage door up. You know what I'm talking about. Now you got the garage door all messed up. You finally get to work. You're late. The boss is upset. You look down at the water cooler. You got two different color socks. You know what I'm talking about? Just like one of those days. Your wife calls you and said the hot water heater went out. Roof's leaking 40 degrees in rain. Hey, listen, I'm from Wisconsin. I will take 30 degrees in snow any day over 40 degrees in rain any day. Okay, there it is, raining, and you're coming. Finally, you come home. Boss is kind of ticked off, and so you're not, and didn't have a good day at work, and you're coming home, and it's Wednesday night, of course. You got to get to Canaan, and, and so uh, uh, you're, you're driving home, and, and 
and you go a little too fast for conditions and you hydroplane as you're coming into the driveway. First the cat, now the dog. Now, you know, well, you only have to dig one hole. You know what I'm talking about? There are some advantages to that. And uh, so it is, you know, you finally get in there, you know, have to put the damaged garage door up and finally you make it to church. Get in just in time. Your wife starts going around after church and say, oh, my husband had a, had a really rough day. You got you to encourage him. Maybe she talks about the, the dog and the cat died, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and so you start having dear brothers and sisters here at Canaan Baptist Church glibly coming up to you, throwing their arm around you and say, hey, brother, hallelujah. All things work together for good, brother. Hallelujah. Now, what do you want to do to that dear brother or sister in Christ that reminds you about Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good? Well, your very reaction shows you you want to slap them upside the head. You know what I'm saying? Like, now, why are, you, why are you struggling with that? Because you don't believe Romans 8.28? No, no, you believe Romans 8.28. You're in paradox. See, paradox is when Romans 8.28 and my day don't seem to work. They're not coming together. You see, that's what paradox is, friends. Now, we use the humorous illustration, and all of us had bad days, and thankfully, we'll outlive that, won't probably remember much about it. But there are other paradoxes in life that are a little rougher. I, I think most of us know that we'll bury our parents. In um, 1989, I buried my mother, and in 1997, I buried my father. And uh, I think you know that. It wasn't easy, but it's not like a shock. You know you're going to bury your parents. But in 2010, when I buried my older sister, I wasn't prepared for that. I was not prepared for that. She died at 54 after an eight-year battle with cancer. And uh, probably one of the godliest Christians ever known. I'm telling, thinking to myself, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, God, I think she'd be a whole lot more effective for you if you left her on earth. She's a tremendous pastor's wife. That's what you call a paradox. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I fully figured that paradox out. And I'm not sure that I ever will this side of eternity. There are tough paradoxes. There's no doubt about it. And paradoxes of suffering come when we're thinking, this is tough. Now remember this. Somebody has said something that was very helpful to me. The will of God is everything you choose if you knew all the factors. The will of God is everything you choose if you know all the factors. You know the truth is, we don't always know all the factors. Let's imagine you're going down the road and you get a flat tire. How many have ever gotten a flat tire? And the very first thing you do is get out of the car, say, glory to God, hallelujah, thank the Lord for this flat tire. Is that what you do? Usually not. But I guarantee if God dropped down a TV set and said, if you hadn't had a flat tire five minutes from now, you watch this TV, this is what would have happened. And you're watching your car get hit by a seminary, burst into flames, and you're done. Toast. And I'm telling you, you know what you'd do? Glory to God, hallelujah, thank you for that flat tire. Wouldn't you have? Why? Because you know all the factors. So here's my encouragement to you. Praise God because he does know the factors and even though you don't, you'd be real excited about it if you did. <laughs> See, but we don't think that way and I'm not saying I do. <laughs> it's not natural to the human psyche, let's just be honest. But at those moments that we are in paradox, we're vulnerable for those question marks. Does, is this really good? Is God really working this together for good? Does God even care about you? You know what I'm talking about? Those are the moments. Satan whispers those in our ear. Now, one of the things that can always help us in those moments, even though it doesn't look like those things could ever work together for good, faith, shield of faith, 
Of course, we're going to talk about that in a moment, quenches those fiery darts. And the way the shield of faith would work with it, say this, you know what? None of this looks like it's going to work together for good, but I believe that it is. Have you ever noticed that when good things, you like good things, there are a lot of things in life that are good. And anything that is ever good, we get excited about. Like, like, let me just give you an illustration. Let's imagine I'm at the back door. I'm not going to do this tonight. We're just imagining. Let's imagine on the way out, I, I uh, hand you a $100 bill and say, you know what, I got a $100 bill I don't need. And, uh, you know, and so uh, I just want to give you a thank you for coming. Here's a $100 bill. Now, that'd be pretty neat, wouldn't you? Get a $100 bill. Wow, got a $100 bill. Now, let's just imagine you go home and you're ticked off. That preacher, you call Pastor Ingram about after an hour after you're home. So that preacher gave me a $100 bill, Pastor. I mean, I've been so upset. I, ever since I got home, I just can't. I'm just fuming and fretting. I can't believe it. I'm not coming back tomorrow night. That preacher gave me a $100 bill. You wake up in the morning and, and uh, you call Pastor Ingram again and say, listen, I could hardly sleep last night. I just got a couple hours of sleep. All night long, I was fretting and fuming about that $100 that preacher gave me. Man, he messed up my life. He ruined my sleep. I, I'm hardly going to be able to function at work today. I'm calling everybody in the church, telling them to boycott the meetings. I'm telling you. Now, would you think that'd be odd? You say, why would it be odd? Because $100 is good was better yesterday and the day before because every day it's worth less. But nonetheless, $100 is good. That's what we think. So uh, we wouldn't be upset about it. All I'm trying to help us understand is the paradox of suffering. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm probably one that would struggle with it just about like anybody else. And that is, friends, it's a moment when Satan tries to throw those darts of doubt, the question marks. Is this really going to work together for good? God really care about you? Is this really... Uh, God really love you? Is he really, you on his radar screen? So the paradox of suffering. Number two, the paradox of a subscriptural experience. The paradox of a subscriptural experience. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you two examples of a subscriptural experience. It's experience that's, it's something that we experience that is below the scriptural level. Now, can I do something here this evening, and I just want to tell you ahead of time, I'm setting you up. Is it fair to set you up if I tell you I'm setting you up? Okay, let's try it. I'm being fair. Okay, how many of you just say amen? Okay, so you guys are, you're Southerners, you know how to say amen. Northerners, I'd have to have them raise their hand, but Southerners can say amen. Okay, so here it is. How many of you believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Yeah, I think I better change my message. Okay, but anyway, okay. How many of you out here believe that the fields are ready to be harvested? Okay, and how many of you believe that God's grace is sufficient? No matter how shy you are, God can give the grace to give the gospel and do his will. Amen. Okay, you know what I just did? I set you up. Because you if you actually believe that, you know what you'll do? You'll give the gospel on a regular basis. Because you believe the gospel is powerful. People are out there ready to be saved. And God can give me the grace to give the gospel. If you really believe those three things, you will be a gospel proclaimer. Now, why aren't we? I'm going to tell you why. Because many times we get, how do we say this? We get distracted by a subscriptural experience. It's like this. You get fired up about giving the gospel and you go out there, get a door slammed, get somebody to react, get somebody upset at you. And then the dart comes in and say, well, maybe the fields aren't ready. Or maybe the gospel's not that powerful. Or maybe I just can't do it. Do you see exactly what happened? See, it's like this, friends. Do not let your defeated experience define what is true. Let the Bible define what is true. 
Because I will tell you, friends, many times Satan will fight us and he wants to get us defeated, so he'll bring some challenges into our life. And if we're not careful, we can drop the shield of faith and those darts of doubt can come right in. Did you know, my friend, that you can miss what is real? Now, let me illustrate it this way. Several years ago, we were doing one of our wars. It was a cola clash. Since you just had one, you know what I'm talking about. It was Pepsi, Coke, not Army, Navy. But we had about 60 kids, probably 57, 58. It wasn't a lot of kids, but it was a decent amount. And, and uh, I remember I preached that night. Uh, that, it was actually an afternoon. We don't do that very often. It was an afternoon in, in East Moline, Illinois, for all you John Deere people. That's John Deere, Jerusalem, if you know what I'm talking about. And uh, uh, so anyway, I, I remember preaching uh, preaching gospel message. And I noticed a young man, big old boy, probably 220 pounds. I remember him laughing almost the whole way through the gospel message. Well, after the service, I went up, got the counseling ready, came back down, and it was down in the basement where we had our service, and he was still there. So I walked up to him, and I began a gospel conversation, and it was like nowhere. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy's not under conviction. This guy's not even close. I'm wasting my time. You ever thought something like that? So I thought, you know, I wrapped it up as quick as I could, and I figured, oh, let me go try to find somebody else. I took three steps. One, two, three. And in those three steps, I got arrested. I don't know how to explain it. It was like the Holy Spirit said to me, that kid's ready to get saved. It was so clear to me. I didn't argue with God. Sometimes I'll, you know, we, we, we run the risk of arguing. I knew, I knew that it was God. God had clearly put it in my heart in those three steps. That kid's ready to get saved. So I went like this. I went one, two, three. And I turned around and in the third, three steps back, I'm thinking, how am I going to restart a conversation with that kid? And I'll tell you, I bumbled around like an idiot. Have you ever jab, you know, jabbered like an idiot trying to restart a conversation? And it was like, man, I'm just fumbling the football. And then it was like God opened it up and drove, uh, it was so big you could have drove a, driven a Mack truck through his opening. The kid looked at me and said, you know what, preacher? He said, I came here today from my grandfather's funeral. And I looked at him. I said, I bet you you're wondering about where you're going to go when you die. I said, wouldn't you like to know your sins are washed away and you're on your way to heaven with no doubts that Jesus Christ has saved you? And he began to cry. And he said, yeah, I would. I took him upstairs. Within 30 minutes, he was wondrously saved. And here's my point, friends. I missed it. I'm saying to myself, this kid's not even close. He's not under conviction. He's not ready to be saved. I take three steps away and the Holy Spirit says, yes, he is. Here's the point, friends. You say, well, preacher, I've had people slam themselves to the door. I've had people be mean to me. You know what? I believe sometimes the most antagonistic responses mean they're probably the people that are closest to the gospel. It's like when my friend, Pastor Matthew Weber, his sister, called him up and started giving him the gospel, and he slammed the phone down after saying, I don't need to get saved, and he dropped his knees and got saved. <laughs> Go figure. See, the point is this, friends. The Bible says, I want you to get this, the Bible says the fields are ready to be harvested. Do you know that God is constantly going in Newton County and he's getting people ready to get saved? Did you know the Bible says the reason people don't get saved is not because the harvest is not ready? God says the harvest is ready. He says the problem with people not getting saved is the laborers are? Yeah, yeah. See, the problem with the harvest down south is not that they aren't ready. The problem is there aren't enough laborers. See, we think the harvest, you know what I've learned? Everywhere you go, people think their place is tough. I'm telling you the honest truth. You go to the Pacific Northwest, they say, oh, preacher, 
Only 5% of the population goes to church. I'm thinking, well, 95 doesn't. That's good. <laughs> That's a lot of people. But all oh, 5% of the population, it's so pagan up here. It's hard in the Pacific Northwest. You know, That's, honestly. Then you go to California. Oh, preacher, it's tough in California. Land of the fruit and sin nuts. I mean, it's unbelievable out here. It's crazy in California. I mean, free thinkers, people are, oh, you know, whacked out. Okay, you know. And then you go to New England. Oh, it's tough in New England, preacher. Everybody's got their great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather buried in the church graveyard down the way, and, and they're all just stiff, formal New England. Boy, it's tough in New England. You know what I'm talking about? You say, well, preacher, are there excuses down south? You better believe it. Oh, everybody's saved down south, preacher. It's tough. You go up to the door, knock on the door. What church do you go? Send such a Baptist church. Who's the preacher's name? I don't know. I haven't been there in 25 years. You know what I'm talking about? It's tough in the south, brother. Now, here's my point. I'm not saying there aren't challenges, and I'm not saying that Satan is involved in the battle. I believe all that, but I'm saying, bottom line, you have to believe it because Jesus said it. He says, I am ripening the harvest. There are people that God is getting their hearts ready to get saved all across this area. And the reason they're not saved is not because they're not ready. The reason they're not saved is the laborers are few. That's what it says. Years ago, there's a Gentleman Falls Baptist Church before I moved there in the year 2000, but I would go there often because my older brother came there as pastor in 1986. And I would visit from time to time. And I remember the, never forget the invitation when a, uh, a young man came forward. He was young, maybe a 30, about 30 years old. He was at, in a residency, I think, at the time. He was working on his becoming a medical doctor. I think he was very close or he'd just gotten it, something like that. And remember he came forward and he surrendered to become a missionary in Cambodia. And I'm ashamed to say after that, uh, I prayed with him. And after that, uh, he's telling me, I think God's calling me to be a missionary. Now, no offense, but I'm telling you, when he said God's calling me to be a missionary, my first thought was, you'll never make it. They're not gonna, they're not, you're not going to raise the money. He didn't really, he's a great guy, but has a unique personality. He's got a very nervous personality. And, and I thought to myself, this guy's not going to make it. There's no way he's even going to get the money. Nobody's going to support him. I didn't tell him that. But I'm thinking, and, and he was a very, you know, kind of guy would just be soul winning. It wasn't, he had some effectiveness, but not a lot of effectiveness. And, but he would just, you know, just one of those guys witnessed anybody anywhere. And, and I was kind of thinking, I don't think this is going to work. And, uh, but anyway, he uh, one day went to a netcaster's seminar years ago, and uh, he learned three truths. The gospel is the power of God and his salvation, that the fields are ready to be harvested and God's grace is sufficient. Now, the difference between him and probably the rest of us is he believed it. And he started going out, expecting God to work, and he began to see remarkable things happen. And I will be honest with you, I believe his soul winning stories are some of the most remarkable soul winning stories you will ever hear. If you're around him, when he comes on home furlough, I go with the guy. Unbelievable. He'll talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. And his stories are remarkable. One day he tells the story, he was driving down the road and as he's driving down the road, he says, I think on deputation or something like this, it, it's, uh, something began to malfunction on his car. It wasn't anything serious, serious, but he's going to have to stop and fix it. And his first thought was, I wonder who God wants me to talk to. Can I be honest with you? You know what my first thought would have been? Stupid car. Okay, you're with me on this. <laughs> so he pulls off at an exit, sees a 71-year-old lady walking across the parking lot. He walks up to her, starts giving her the gospel. She gets saved. 
She said, young man, you're not going to believe this. She said, I woke up this morning and I said to myself, I got to find out how I can know when I die I'm going to heaven. She said, I called my Catholic priest. He couldn't tell me. She said, I called all my friends. None of them could tell me. And now here you come and tell me. You know what that's called? Ripened harvest. Another time, he, he was in a grocery store, and he walks up to a guy in a grocery store, and he sticks a track in front of his face. The track had one of those real subtle titles to it. If you died right now, would you go to heaven or hell? You know what I'm talking about? One of those little subtle approach tracks. You know? Sticks that track right in front of his face. If you died tonight, would you 100% sure you go to heaven or hell? Something like that. And the guy looked at it like he'd seen a ghost. And this missionary says, you want to talk about it? It goes like this. They walked out, sat on one of those benches. You know how there's benches in front of grocery stores? They put them there for soul winning. I bet you didn't know that. That's why they're there. Okay, and so he sits down, leads the guy to the Lord. And here's what the guy, got, guy says. You're not going to believe this. He said, I came to the grocery store from the graveyard. He said, I buried one of my parents a few months ago. He said, the other one just a day or so ago. He said, I just came from the fresh grave. I can't remember which parent it was. He said, I threw myself literally prostrate across the fresh grave of the parent that just died. And he said, I prayed this prayer. Dear God, would you please show me how I could be 100% sure I was going to heaven and not hell. Moments later, he sees a gospel track with that exact question on it. You say, preacher, that's amazing. You know what that's called? Ripened harvest. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind. You say, preacher, why doesn't that ever happen to me? I'm not trying to be unkind because you don't believe it. You know what Satan does when we get discouraged in evangelism? We have a few defeats. He starts throwing question marks. Is the, is, are the people really ready? Is the gospel powerful? Is God's grace really sufficient? Can you do this? Question mark. The paradox of a subscriptural experience. But there's another subscriptural experience I'd like to talk about. Think about this verse in 2 Corinthians. It says, thanks be unto God who always, did you catch that word? Always causes us to triumph in Christ. You say, preacher, I don't see victory in my life all the time. It's like this, friends. Many people, how do I say this, expect defeat. And you know what God says? If you really understand who you are in Jesus Christ, there is victory in Jesus Christ every single time. But you know why we don't believe that? Because we have a subscriptural experience. We get defeated here, we get defeated here, we get defeated here. It's like this. The Bible teaches us we're going to battle sin to the day we die. We never get to the point where we live above sin. Years ago, there was a very popular doctrine called sinless perfectionism. They believed it that you could reach a point where you never sinned again. This is before you die. Boy, I'll tell you what, I'd like that to happen. You know what I'm talking about? It's one of those theologies that's not true, but I thought it would really be nice if it could happen. You know what I'm talking about? Sinless perfectionism. They used to call it living above sin. And I remember years ago when I was in Bible conference, a Bible conference preacher got up and said, the only way to live above sin is to rent a room above a pool hall. Okay, I thought that was interesting. It's a dated, it's dated. Only old people will get it. No millennials will get it at all. But anyway, uh, but they, the idea, friends, you know, we, we've come to the point where well, we don't believe in sinless perfectionism. You know what we mostly believe today? Sinful imperfectionism. Most Christians today say this is their mantra. Well, nobody's... Yeah. In other words, how do I say this? We don't expect victory. We don't expect triumph. 
I recognize, again, like I said, you're going to battle with flesh to the day you die. The Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I get that. But I will tell you, it also says that every time you're tempted, God makes a way of escape. There's no temptation taking you. There's never a time when you and I are tempted that there is not victory possible. Are you tracking with me? And see what happens is we believe, well, I'll never have victory. And it's just Satan just threw a dart right in there. Just a question mark. I'm telling you, if you're out here and saying, preacher, I know you're talking about some of these issues. You know, people struggle looking at junk or, or people struggle with anger. I, I've tried. I can't have victory. You know what you just did? I'm telling you, you dropped the shield of faith and Satan threw a question mark where God put a period and you find yourself defeated. So the paradox of a subscriptural experience, you define what is true by your defeated experience instead of defining what is true by the word of God. Number three, the paradox of a satanic counterfeit. The paradox of a satanic counterfeit. Now the Bible says in no marvel for even Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. I will tell you friends, Satan is a master counterfeiter. You know when, when, when people die and go to hell, the Bible seems to indicate there in the book, book of Isaiah chapter number 14 that people are going to say, is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that the shake kingdoms? In other words, you've got to be kidding me. This is Satan. Now, don't get me wrong. Satan's more powerful than anybody in this room. But I'm telling you, I think we overestimate his power. You know why? Because he's a masquerader. He's a counterfeiter. And uh, one of the things he often likes to do is counterfeit God. Now, why does he do it? Don't, don't miss this. Because he wants, you to, he wants to discredit God. So let me give you this one. Counterfeit conviction. You say, what's counterfeit conviction? You ever done this? Oh, God, I was wrong. I should have got angry. Lord, would you forgive me? God, I'm claiming 1 John 1, 9. Maybe even get it right. And, the, and it's like Satan comes along and says, you know, that was really bad. You've been doing that a lot lately. God's not forgiving you. And you know what? Sometimes people believe that. It's counterfeit conviction. You say, well, preacher, how can you tell the difference between counterfeit conviction and Holy Spirit conviction? I'm glad you asked because it's really simple. Counterfeit conviction or satanic conviction always drives you to despair and Holy Spirit conviction always drives you to hope. I put it this way. Satanic counterfeit conviction drives you to Sinai and Holy Spirit conviction drives you to Calvary. But I'm telling you, you've got a counterfeiter. And there are some people that are absolutely, Satan yanks their chain with his accusations of counterfeit conviction. Some of you got saved from a pretty bad past. And I'm going to tell you right now, the devil's going to come along and say, you did some pretty bad things. And I'm going to just tell you right now, you just look them in the face and said, they're under the blood of Jesus Christ. You better have it out with Jesus because they're not my responsibility anymore. See, Satan loves to accuse us. But whenever he does, mark this down, it is always flying in the face of Bible truth. See, he's putting a question mark where God puts a period. There are other things I could talk about. How about counterfeit worship? You think in the Atlanta area there might be some people on Sunday morning who think they're worshiping God when they may not be? <laughs> yeah, there's counterfeit worship. If you don't believe that, study Exodus 32. It's what I call the first counterfeit Christian uh, uh, worship concert that you have on the entire Word of God right there. I don't have time to preach it. I got a whole message on that. But, um, but anyway, so you've got counterfeits. So and he, Satan always counterfeits because he wants to discredit God. Remember that. 
Number four, and I'm almost done. The paradox of supralogic. The paradox of supralogic. You say, supra what? Okay, now this is not original with me. But supralogic is this. It is logic that is above finiteness. Did you know that God's logical? In other words, friends, but God's logical. He's not illogical. He's logical, but his logic is above finiteness. Which means in our finiteness, not every paradox of God can we understand. I try to teach our theology students, particularly in the seminary, that uh, I call it paradox, paradoxology or paradox theology. And it's really not original with me. But the idea is there's a lot of tension truths in the Word of God. And the truth is at the apex of theological tension. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Let me just give you one example. You say, why are you bringing it up? Because you need to, sometimes people get off on stuff and uh, this can just be a simple help. Okay, I've got a question. Is God sovereign? Is he in control? And the answer is, hallelujah, amen. I'm glad he is because I'd be pretty messed up if he wasn't, particularly what's been going on the last few years. Okay, does man have human responsibility and have a genuine free will? And the answer is, yeah, he does. But I'll be honest with you, friends. If you try to reconcile those things theologically, you can't do it. There's theological tension. I just cut to the chase this way. Romans chapter 9 teaches God's sovereignty. Romans chapter 10 teaches human responsibility. And Romans chapter 11 says his ways are past finding out. I think every snack shop, if you haven't familiar with Bible college, they call it snack shop theology. That's when students act like they're smart when they're really not. Okay, they show how dumb they are. Okay, I think in every Bible college, and we should probably put this one up here, put up that Romans 11 verse, his ways are past finding out, and then put in big bold letters on the bottom. So don't try, stupid. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> You're never going to be able to reconcile free will and sovereignty on the human level. You know why? Because it's an infinite God that has put that together. <laughs> And finiteness cannot understand infinity. It's impossible. It's like this. I heard of one college kid who in his latter years of Bible college unfortunately fell under wrong influences and you can find them all over the internet and sometimes a stealth professor in a Bible college will sneak in. But here's what he said. He said, he said when I was a freshman, he said, I was out on the strip trying to win people to Jesus Christ that God didn't want to save anyway. Now, I don't want you to miss that. You know what that is? That's putting a question mark where God put a period. The Bible says God's not willing that any should perish. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God wants to save all those people on the strip. So where did that come from? It came from the paradox of superlogic. He couldn't figure it out. So Satan came along and says, God doesn't want to save everybody. There are people that say that it doesn't matter how much you pray, God's going to do what he's going to say he's going to do. Or what he wants to do. Uh, God's going to do what he wants to do. And whether you pray doesn't make any difference at all. You know what that is, friends? Again, that's the paradox of super logic. I believe with all my heart, your and my prayers make a difference. They make a difference because God says they do. Ask and you shall receive. It makes a difference. So, uh, so we could go on all kinds of paradoxes there. Now you say, okay, preacher, so we've gone through these paradoxes. Now let's come back and finish the message. Where do we leave Peter? Oh, where do we leave Peter? Oh, yeah, we left Peter in pretty bad shape. Peter's weeping. Why? Because he fell in the moment of paradox 
He denied the Lord three times. He believed Jesus was Messiah, but it did not fit into his paradigm. How in the world is he dying? Denies the Lord three times. So that's the end of Peter, right? I mean, we really never hear of Peter again. He kind of washes out and that's the end. Is that right? Is that the end of Peter? No. No, the next thing we find about Peter, there's a few other things that happen in between, but the next big moment of Peter is the day of Pentecost. And Peter's in front of thousands of people preaching a message with wicked hands, she crucified him. Boy, he's going after it. But don't miss this. What happened? Did you know while Peter preached that day, he mentioned the crucifixion and he also proved the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament because there was no New Testament. <laughs> you say, well, what happened? Somewhere, my friend, in between. In fact, he, he, he literally quotes three verses of Scripture from the Old Testament, two from the book of Psalms and one from Joel. Remember what faith is. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by? Yeah, so what is faith? Faith has an object. So here's what old Peter did. Somewhere along the line, I don't know exactly what all happened, but we know this much. He came to a confidence about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He saw it taught in the Old Testament. And you know what happened when he lifted the shield of faith? Don't miss this. The fiery darts, the question marks were quenched. You remember what Jesus said to him? I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you're converted, not saved, that means turn back. Strengthen thy brethren. And I want to tell you something, friends. You and I can fall prey to the wicked one. Drop that shield of faith and the question marks. Those darts of doubt come shining through and come zipping into our hearts and leave a scar there. But I got to have you good news. You can lift the shield of faith and it quenches those fiery darts. In other words, put your confidence back in the very scriptures Satan got you to doubt. Go back and believe that all things work together for good and start praising God even though you can't figure it out. Go back and believe that the fields are ready to be harvested and start praising God that there's a ripened harvest and ask God to lead you to it. Go ahead and believe the gospel's the power of God unto salvation. Believe that God's grace is sufficient. He can enable you to do to give the gospel. Believe it. I'm telling you, get that shield of faith back up. Get that shield of faith back up and believe that what God says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and quench the fiery dart of satanic counterfeit. You see this, friends? Believe that God's not willing that any should perish and, and he, uh, he wants all men to be saved. Put your confidence back in the word of God and that's what happens is you quench the fiery darts of the devil. So Satan's sifting of saints. There's not a person in this room that will not, if you haven't already, have not been through multiple paradoxes in life and those are the moments you and I need to beware. Satan's going to be throwing question marks. He's going to riddle us. You're going to throw question marks where God put a period. And tonight, my friend, if you've let some of those question marks through, I got good news. You can come down to an old-fashioned altar and lift the shield of faith and see all the fiery darts of the wicked quenched tonight. Could I ask heads to be bowed and eyes to be closed? Heads are bowed and eyes closed.